Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number six, Exodus chapters five and six. This week we're going to begin Exodus chapter five. And I'm going to change up on you just a bit. Usually we read from the complete Jewish Bible. This time, though, I'm going to be reading from a version called simply the Scriptures. And it is for one reason only. Everywhere that the original Hebrew text included the name of God, yud heh vav -Hey, Yehovah, so does this translation. Okay. The point of my doing this will, I think, become self-evident. So please open your Bibles, follow along with me, whichever version is your favorite, whichever one you have with you. Exodus chapter 5. And afterwards, Moshe and Aharon went in and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yehovah Elohim of Israel, let my people go so that they can keep a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is Yehovah that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know Yehovah, nor am I going to let Israel go. And they said, the Elohim of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness and slaughter to, Elo, to uh, Yehovah, our Elohim, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the sovereign of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from the work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, see, the people of the land are many now. And you make them cease from the burdens. And the same day Pharaoh commanded the slave drivers of the people and their foremen saying, you're no longer to give the people straw to make bricks with as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves and lay on them the required amount of bricks which they made before. Do not diminish it, for they are idle. That's why they cry out saying, let's go and slaughter to our Elohim. Let more work be laid on the men so that they labor in it and not pay attention to the words of falsehood. And the slave drivers of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I do not give you straw. Go, take straw for yourselves, wherever you find it, for your work shall not be diminished. And the people were scattered in all the land of Mitzrayim, Egypt, to gather stubble for straw. And the slave drivers were hurrying them on, saying, Complete your work, your daily amount, as when there was straw. Also the foremen of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your task in making bricks both to yesterday and today as before? And the foremen of the children of Israel came out and cried to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you treat your servants this way? There is no straw given to your servants, and they still say to us, Make bricks. And see, your servants are beaten, but your own people are at fault. But he said, you're idle, you're idle. That is why you say, let us go and slaughter to Yehovah. So now go, work. And straw is not given to you, but deliver the amount of bricks. And the foreman of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble. After, uh, after it was said, you're not to diminish your daily amount of bricks. And when they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moshe and Aharon, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let Yehovah look on you and judge, because you have made us loathsome in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to give a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moshe returned to Yehovah and said, Yehovah, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you even send me? For ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Does it surprise you a little bit that God's name appears so many times in this chapter? In Bible translations over the years have tended to obliterate 
the use of God's name by replacing it with more generic terms like God or Lord. But by reinserting God's formal personal name, we get a clearer picture of just what was transpiring here between Moses and Pharaoh. And as I've discussed with you on several occasions, every ancient culture believed in multiple gods and in a spirit world. That wasn't an issue. Okay? And every culture had a fairly similar set of gods. It's just that their names varied. Right? And the territory where each of these gods ruled had to be defined. But knowing each god's name was all important to the ancient mind. For knowing a god's name was key to communicating with that god and getting that god to do what you wanted. So here we see Pharaoh not wondering if there's such a thing as God or if there was a God of the Hebrews. It's just that obviously he'd never heard of Yehovah. Who is this Yehovah? He says. Further, since gods were territorial and the Hebrews were living in Egypt, Pharaoh was incredulous that there could have existed a God there that had some undefined kind of influence within Egypt. Right? And he didn't know about that God. How could that be? I mean, where did this God, Yehovah, fit within the hierarchy of gods? Why had nobody introduced Pharaoh to him before now? I mean, what was this new God's sphere of influence? And perhaps most important to Pharaoh, why would he need to be at all concerned with this Yehovah when he commanded? the most powerful gods in Egypt. In fact, the Pharaoh himself was considered to be the incarnation of a god, and so was divine. For Pharaoh, Yehovah was an unwanted rival. Okay, So Pharaoh, skeptical and downright offended, got after Moses and Aaron. And indeed, Pharaoh had never heard of Yehovah after all. It was only recently that the Lord had revealed his name to mankind for the first time. And he revealed it to Moses on Mount Sinai in Midian just a few weeks earlier at the burning bush. Okay, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh and they tell him what God demands of the king of Egypt. And it was that Israel should be allowed to go free into the desert for a time, three days, three day journey away from their captors in order to worship this Yehovah. Or, as it really should be taken in verse 1, to make a pilgrimage festival to me. What Moses says is that the Lord wants Israel to make a Hagag, a Hagag, all right, which is Hebrew for pilgrimage festival. Okay. Pilgrimage festivals simply mean that the worshippers are required to make a journey, if necessary, to a specified place, usually to where there is a, a shrine or a sanctuary. Right? And this was to celebrate and pay homage to a certain god. Okay. When we get to later chapters of Exodus and then on into Leviticus, we're going to find that of the seven Biblical festivals that God will ordain to Israel, three of them are Hagag. They're pilgrimages. Right? And in each case, they involve traveling to the temple, which, by the way, wasn't always in Jerusalem. Now, the laughable idea that Pharaoh would allow the Israelites a few days to go worship their God in the wilderness just merely bemused Pharaoh. Okay. What really chafed him all right, was that the words Moses and Aaron spoke clearly established to Pharaoh that Yehovah considered the Israelites as belonging to him. And of course, this is the crux of the matter. All right, because as Pharaoh insists, all contraire, these Hebrews don't belong to this supposed God of the Hebrews. They belong to me. Okay, For just a moment, 
Let's detour and zoom in on a small phrase in verse 1. Because it sets up an important principle that helps us to understand key areas of the Bible in general. I'd like to call your attention to the use of two little words, my people, which is what God often calls the Hebrews. Now, interestingly, several hundred years into the future, God would call some of the Hebrews not my people. What's important to understand is that in the Hebrew scriptures, going back to a time just after Isaac was born, perhaps 600 years earlier from the time we're now at in Exodus, God began referring to the Hebrews as his Ami. Ami, Hebrew for my people. Now the word Ami, people, is not to be taken in the sense of random individuals. Okay, Nor is it used to refer to an anonymous group of individuals like a crowd, just a crowd of people. Okay. For instance, from where you're sitting, if you were to turn around and look at all the people sitting around you, Ami is not people in that sense. It's not simply some number of generic human beings gathered together. Okay. Rather, people, Ami, is somewhat synonymous with the word nation. Ami is a group of humans with a common heritage, whether that heritage is natural or adopted. That is, Israel is a separate, identifiable people, a nation. Yet Ami is not precisely synonymous, synonymous with nation. Okay. The word used for nation in the Bible is goyim. But you will never see the word goyim used to refer to Hebrew people or to the Hebrew nation. Because as of about the time of Isaac, around 1900 BC, the word goyim came to specifically indicate Gentile people. Gentile nations. That is, everybody except for Hebrews. So after about Genesis 12 in your Bibles, when God is referring to the nation of Israel, it'll be with the word Amim, my people. That is generally employed while all other nations of the world are referred to as Goyim, just nations. And I'll point this out to you because it makes both biblical history and prophecy a whole lot easier to untangle if you know what the terms people and nation are referring to, whether it's to Gentile people or to Hebrew people or to everybody in general. We first discovered the importance of understanding the word goyim back in Genesis because it enabled us to unlock the significance of Jacob's blessing upon Joseph's son, Ephraim. That Ephraim would in some undefined way become a fullness or a blessing of Goyim, Gentile nations, right? as opposed to the Hebrew nation. Now, if you attended my Ten Lost Tribes seminar, then you know that Ephraim and the fullness of Gentiles are central to understanding end times prophecy. Right, that, that's why I encourage all of you to have a good concordance handy when studying the Torah. Just as God's name is now totally obscure in the Bible, so is there unnecessary confusion over the word nation or people as to whether it's speaking of Gentiles, Hebrews, or just people in general. Now it's kind of interesting how Pharaoh responds to Moses and Aaron's messages from God. Pharaoh doesn't deny that A, there's a God called Jehovah, nor B, that this Jehovah is Israel's God. He seems to accept that. He simply doesn't see what all this has to do with him. I mean, we're in Egypt, right? 
Therefore, by all understanding of the people of that day about how gods are supposed to operate, this is the realm of the Egyptian gods. And Pharaoh thinks, the Egyptian gods are powerful, and they're many, so why would I worry about one measly god, and on top of that, one who's got over a bunch of slaves? After all, since Jehovah was so powerful, why are his people slaves to me? This was de facto evidence to Pharaoh that the Egyptian gods were more powerful than the Hebrew god and that he had no reason to pay any attention to this Jehovah. Now, I wonder about what exactly it was that Aaron told Pharaoh because what we read here in chapter 5 that was said isn't entirely what we had been told that God instructed Moses and Aaron to say. I mean, notice that it seems to have been embellished just a tad. As in the last part of verse 3, the words are, Otherwise, he, God, might strike us with a plague or a sword. And where did this come from? Did God tell Moses that if Pharaoh didn't let them go into the desert, that God would strike down the Israelites? Not that we're aware of. Notice what ordinary men we are dealing with here in Moses and in Aaron. So far, they're not doing too good. Just about like you or I would do in such circumstances, standing before such a great and imposing man as the king of Egypt, we kind of decide to jazz up things a little bit. You know, God has such an economy of words that are so to the point, maybe we can assist him a little bit. Well, Pharaoh responds. And he tells Moses and Aaron to get back to work, that he has no intentions of letting that enormous group of Israelites who are the laborers of Egypt, the craftsmen who do the bulk of the building, go on a three-day holiday. And then Pharaoh sets a precedent that I'm afraid will be repeated ad nauseum in the centuries ahead. He takes the irrational tact of making the Israelites work that's so vital to Egypt's well-being and makes it almost impossible to achieve. He tells them that they're going to have to gather their own straw, a very necessary ingredient, for making the millions upon millions of mud bricks necessary for building more of his cities. Now this was very disruptive in every way and would have resulted in fewer bricks than more. And this is attested to in verse 12, where it says the people had to stop their brick making and scatter throughout the land of Egypt to fetch straw that added the necessary strength to the mud bricks. Now this is a good time to point out, by the way, that the Israelites did not build pyramids in Egypt. I don't care what Charlton Heston says. The pyramid building era was long over. And now pharaohs and nobles were being buried primarily in hollowed out, if not magnificently decorated, shafts and caves. The primary construction projects of the Israelites were roads, military fortresses, and storage facilities. And the primary building material was mud bricks, not stone. In verse 14, the predictable end result is shown to us when the Egyptian taskmasters ask the officers of Israel, why haven't you fulfilled your quota of bricks yesterday and today as you did formerly? And the officers of Israel, the foremen, were beaten because of the lowered output. Now these officers, various versions use various names for them, were not the elders of Israel. They were what are sometimes called scribes. These these are the the second of, of types of elected or appointed leaders of Israel who represent the people. And of course, the real goal of Pharaoh at this point was to harass and punish. 
it was hatred gone wild. In World War II Germany, about the only thing the pre-war economy had going for it was the Jews, who were the industrialists and the bankers and the scientists. And after the start of the war, as the Nazis suddenly turned a demonic rage inward and started exterminating Jews by the millions, all it accomplished was to damage their economy, destroy their best source of technology advancement, and eventually limit their ability to make war. Right? Just as Satan, in the end, used Hitler as a puppet, so it was with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had just taken the first steps towards Egypt's devastation. Okay. The thing that was going to be necessary for the re release of Jehovah's firstborn, Israel. Now it's interesting to note that in one of the great stores cities that the Israelites are given credit for building, Pithom, right, an archaeological find there has confirmed this story of the bricks and straw. Because in 1883 and then later in 1908, two Egyptologists made a startling discovery. They unearthed some mud brick structures in Pithom from about that time period in which the bottom courses of bricks were made with the normal content of cut straw. The middle courses were made with straw that had been pulled up by the roots and the final courses contain no straw at all. Just another of the many proofs of what went on down there. Now the scribes, the Hebrew foreman, beaten and now pretty irate, he turned to Moses. And in fact, they go around Moses and God and they go directly to the Pharaoh. He has, of course, no interest in their problems. I mean, I mean how quickly faith can disappear, huh? Just a few days earlier, these same scribes were fully persuaded and prepared to follow Moses as God's deliverer of his people. Today, with Pharaoh's decree that they will have to gather their own straw and with the physical punishment upon the foreman for failure to gather their straw and make their quota of bricks, they call on this same God to judge Moses, to punish him. And we're told earlier that Moses told them in advance all that God had told him on the mountain of God and included in it that indeed the Pharaoh was going to reject all of his demands. No doubt they hadn't counted, they hadn't counted on consequences quite like these. Following God always has consequences. Moses did exactly the right thing, though. He goes to God with the complaint of the people. Moses completely understands the Hebrews' upset at this turn of events, and he feels terribly, uh, terribly responsible. Now, let's be sure we get the correct tone of Moses' inquiry of God in verse 23. He was humble, and he was very concerned for his people. He, had he done something he wasn't supposed to do, was there something he didn't do that he should have done? I mean, oh, how many times I've asked God this question when a direction I was so sure God had ordained for my life suddenly met with at least what seemed to me a pretty major bump in the road. I mean, Moses demanded nothing of the Lord. He wasn't angry with God. Okay? Really, Moses was just seeking reassurance. He wanted confirmation that he was indeed obeying. Moses, Moses was learning. Let's continue this story now in chapter 6. Move on to chapter 6. And I'm going to continue reading in the same Bible, the Scriptures. Exodus chapter 6. And Yehovah said to Moses, Now see what I do to the Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he's going to let them go. And with a strong hand, he's going to drive them out from his land. And Elohim spoke to Moshe and said to him, I am Yehovah. And I appeared to Abraham, to Yitzhak, to Yaakov as El Shaddai. 
And by my name, Yehovah, I was not known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their sojournings in which they have sojourned. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the, uh, the uh, Mistrites, the Egyptians, are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am Yehovah, and I shall bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and shall deliver you from their enslaving, and shall redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I shall take you as my people, and I shall be your Elohim. And you shall know that I am Yehovah, your Elohim, who is bringing you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I shall bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give it to you as an inheritance. I am Yehovah. And Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they didn't listen to Moses because of shortness of spirit and from hard slavery. And Yehovah spoke to Moses saying, Go in, speak to Pharaoh, sovereign of Egypt, to the, let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before Yehovah saying, The children of Israel have not listened to me. And why would Pharaoh listen to me? For, for I'm with uncircumcised lips. And Yehovah spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, sovereign of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok and Palu, Hestron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. And the sons of Shimon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, and Yachin, Sohar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Shimon. These are the names of the sons of uh, uh, Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kahat, Merari. And the, life, the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon, Livni, and Shimai, according to their clans. And the sons of Kehat, Amram, and Yishtar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kehat were 133. And the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of Levi, according to their generations. And Amram took for himself Yehochabed, his father's sister, as a wife. And she bore him Aharon and Moshe, and the years of the life of Amram were 137. And the sons of Ishtar, uh, uh, Kurah, and Nepheg, and Zichri, and the sons of Uzel, uh, Mishael, and Elsaphan, and Sithri. Aharon took to himself Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, his, uh, his wife. And she bore him Nadab, and Abihu, Elazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abigasaf. These are the sons of the Korites. And Elazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putuel as wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers of the Levites, according to their clans. This is Aharon and Moses, to whom Yehovah said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to foreign, uh, to Pharaoh, sovereign of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. This is Moses and Aaron. And it came to be on the day when Yehovah spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that Yehovah spoke to Moses saying, I am Yehovah. Speak to Pharaoh, sovereign of Egypt, all that I say to you. And Moses said before Yehovah, see, I am an of uncircumcised lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Now permit me to remind you that the first verse of chapter 6 is a direct continuation of the last verse of chapter 5. I mean, as Moses prayed to Jehovah for an explanation, God immediately gives him the answer. Don't worry, I've got it all under control. Okay. No, of course, that's not quite the words of the scripture, but it's the essence of what God said. Okay. God tells Moses that he's to familiarize the Hebrew people with his formal name, yud heh vav Yehovah. 
and that even though he was and is the God of the patriarchs, he didn't make everything known to them. And one thing that he didn't tell them was his personal name, Yehovah. Instead, verse 3 says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and really all Hebrews up until this moment, knew God as El Shaddai. Now this typically is translated as God Almighty, but in all honesty, this was never a true translation. Okay, It was just a guess at what the term even meant. So to be most accurate, we would have to say that the first part of that name or title, El Shaddai, means the highest God. That's what El means. It just means the highest God. And as I've shared with you, it has recently been discovered that the word Shaddai, which in its strictest sense is not a Hebrew word, is but a language cognate of the Akkadian word Shadu, which means mountain. So the Lord is saying that Moses' ancestors knew of him as the highest God of the mountain. Okay. Now let me share something with you, something that I'm becoming more and more aware of and more and more unsure as to why it is. In verse 2, when God says to Moses, I am, then put something there, most versions will say, I am the Lord or I am God, or I am Adonai. And since Lord is simply the English translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, then Lord and Adonai mean the same thing. Okay? But the original Hebrew is not either of those words. Instead, it's yud He vav He, Yehovah, God's personal name. Now, there is no Bible scholar that I'm aware of that would even argue that point. Okay. The Hebrew letters Yud, He, Vav, He are there and in 6,000 other places in the Old Testament. The question is, why is it that the majority of time that the original Hebrew uses God's personal name, Yehovah, that our translations elect instead to say, Lord or God. Why? Now, I can understand why Jews, even Messianic Jews, do this. All right? It's because of a tradition they've had for over 2,300 years against uttering or even writing the word God, let alone using his name. All right? But why do Gentile Christians do this? I'm sorry, this is just a pet peeve of mine. Okay. Somehow I think that when God gave us his personal name to use when referring to him, we ought to use it. Even if we don't know precisely how to pronounce it. And when the Bible does use his personal name instead of something more generic like Lord, which does appear, admittedly, from time to time, we need to know it, we need to read it that way because in it, we see the personal and endearing nature of the Lord and not just some generic title. Okay, the reality is that most of the pagan gods were called Lord. Because Lord is just a rather ancient and outdated term that's synonymous with master. And it's but a sign of respect. It's not really a name. Okay, we also need to know and used Jehovah's name particularly in our era because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has a challenger named Allah. And Islam and many within the church would have you believe that Allah and Jehovah are but two names for the same God. I mean, after all, Muslims will tell you that Allah means God. And most are aware that our Bibles invariably call the God of the Bible, God. I got news for you. The Egyptians also referred to many of their gods simply as God. Okay, particularly when one of their gods was the family God. Okay, 
we Jews and Christians have brought about this problem ourselves if we had not replaced Yehovah with the generic word God or Adonai which is again simply the Hebrew word for Lord so long ago we wouldn't have near as much trouble in recognizing that Allah which is by the way the formal name for the God of Islam cannot possibly be the same God as Yehovah because they're two entirely different names okay. God like the word president is the title of an office it's not the name of the person who holds the office our current president is named Bush his name is not president God's name is Yehovah not God and certainly not Allah now we also need to understand that what is actually being communicated to Moses at this point is that Moses' forefathers, it says, saw, S-A-W, saw God as El Shaddai. Many versions will say that God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob instead of the word saw. And the original Hebrew word used here for saw or appeared is ra'ah, R-A-A-H, ra'ah. And it does mean to say, it does mean see or saw, but it means it in the sense of perceiving or revealing. That is, we might say to somebody in a debate, oh, I finally see what you're getting at. That is, I finally comprehend it. I finally perceive it. I got it. It's not about our optic nerves operating correctly as much as it is to behold the essence of something intellectually. Okay? So God is saying that he revealed himself. That is, he made his essence known to the patriarchs in a little different way than he's now revealing it to Moses. What was that difference? Well, one difference is the level of intimacy. Okay? It's, it's like the difference between addressing me as the less personal Mr. Bradford than the more personal Tom. Okay? Over time, God was making himself more known and more personal and more accessible. Progressively, God is revealing himself to mankind. And this really is what we see all throughout the word. You know, while we get but an outline of God in Genesis, by the time we reach the end of Torah, we have more information about who God is than we can humanly comprehend. The next to the last revealed manifestation of God that we read about in the Bible is Yeshua. And Jesus made the relationship between God and man almost as personal as it gets. Okay. He became one of us. He walked among us. He shared the woes of the fleshly human existence with us. And I say almost because when Jesus left, we received the Holy Spirit. God didn't walk among us, external to us, anymore. He took that next step. And now he lives within us. I mean, in the most literal, literal possible sense, God dwells with us, internal to us. Okay. In verses 3 and 4, Moses would have understood that the point God was making was that he was giving more of himself to Moses than he ever did to Moses' ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jehovah was also going to give more of himself to Israel. And in verses 4 and 5, God once more established his universal reign over all. He reminds Moses that he was the Hebrews' God back up in Canaan just as he's their God down in Egypt and he's heard their cry for help 
And he makes it quite clear that now some 600 years after it was first established, his covenant with Abraham, every last detail of it, still stands. And he, gave, he gives Moses, Moses a message to take back to the people of Israel who were so discouraged at having their workloads increased when, they, when what they thought was about to come about was relief from their oppression. And it was a message just full of love and hope. And it was this. I, Yehovah, I will bring you out of Egypt. I, Yehovah, will rescue you from servitude to all that is Egypt. And I, Yehovah, will redeem you. Further, I, Yehovah, will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land of promise. I will give it to you, Israel, as your possession. I, Yehovah, will do it all. All you have to do is receive it. You see, as much as the Egypt of the Exodus is real and tangible, it's also a type. Okay? Egypt itself is going to be used throughout the rest of the Bible to represent servitude, bondage, a foreign place, a way of life that was not meant for God's people. But Egypt is really representative of the place where we all resided before we cried out to God to rescue us. And when Christ came and made it possible for Gentiles to be joined to God's covenants with Israel, this list of promises we just read in verses 6 through 8, this list of I wills became applicable to all mankind who will trust in God's provision. God will bring everyone who trusts the Lord Yeshua out of, your, out of servitude, out of a foreign place. He will redeem us. He'll take us as his people. He'll be our God. He'll bring us to an eternal land of promise. Every promise of the new and abundant life that we receive through Christ originates right here in Torah. Every one of them. Right? And here's the thing. It's God who does it all. So Moses took the message God gave him to the people, but they wouldn't receive it. Right? And the reason they wouldn't receive the message of their deliverance, of their salvation, is contained in verse 9. And depending on your version, it's generally that their spirits were crushed. And they were completely exhausted from their hard labors. You know, it's near impossible to hear God when we're are living a life constantly out of breath I mean, due, due to hyperactivity. And when we are consumed and defeated by our ever-demanding and increasing fleshly necessities and eventually the bitterness of our souls. The Hebrews were in servitude to Egypt because they were forced to be. We were in servitude because we were born into that condition. Just as God wanted to rescue Israel, he wants to rescue us. But the Hebrews couldn't then, and you know, only a few of mankind can now hear and accept the message of their deliverance. So, you say you want to be a prophet of God, huh? Well, here's Moses. The Pharaoh just laughs at him, and Moses' Hebrews' brothers want to Skin him alive. Okay? And God tells him, time to go see Pharaoh again. Oh boy. And what appeared to be a settled matter with Moses not long ago, once again is in doubt. As Moses says to God, well, if the people of Israel won't listen to me, why would Pharaoh? Actually, what verse 11 literally quotes Moses saying is, I am of foreskinned uncircumcised lips. This is an idiom. It simply means that his speech is poor. Poor in the sense of inadequate. What Moses is saying is, God, my ability to speak the words you want and make a difference is impossible. God, of course, would have none of it. 
And in verse 12, Jehovah speaks to Moses and Aaron and makes it clear to them that it is their duty before God to speak to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel, the end result being the deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt. You see, Moses still thinks that it's his words, how he presents them, how he phrases them, how he pronounces them, whether or not he appears confident, whether or not he's well prepared, that is the key for getting the message of deliverance out to the Pharaoh. God tried early on to convince him that Moses' own abilities simply didn't matter a whit. And out of mercy for a man who could not yet understand nor fully accept God's ways, God gave Moses, Aaron, his brother, to speak for him. Even though it really wasn't needed, because Moses' adequacy was never the issue. Several years ago, when Becky and I lived in the Florida Keys, I went out on a church visitation with the assistant pastor of the church we attended. Great, small church down there. And we visited a young couple that had come to church off and on for, for years. And now they asked that a pastor would come to visit them. Now this assistant pastor that I went with was one of the most wonderful, decent, and real believers I've ever known. I mean, but when he began to speak to this couple about their need for Christ, explaining the gospel message, I listened in absolute horror as he fouled this thing up so badly, I couldn't even make heads or tails out of what he was trying to say. And, and I already knew the points he came here to make. Well, this went on for a solid hour. All right? I mean, one of the longest, most uncomfortable hours in all my life. And I sat there silently, probably red in the face, as that young couple did. I figured they were embarrassed and just being polite. And I started wondering if these people were ever going to come to church again after tonight. Well, after he finished, the assistant pastor looks at them and says, Okay, you want to pray and receive Jesus as your Lord? Well, I'm grabbing my Bible. All right, I'm getting ready to get up and thinking, Yeah, right, let's just get out of here. And they both leaned forward and said, Oh, yes. We prayed with them, and then I watched their lives change and grow over the next several months as the Holy Spirit became their guide. I mean, here's the thing. I went home and I told Becky this story. I told her I had learned a great lesson that night. You know, it's not our words or abilities that brings anyone to accept deliverance. It's God changing their hearts. I mean, we are indeed commanded to go and speak the message of salvation to the unsaved. But you know, when we're in God's will and he's prepared the hearts of those he has chosen for us to speak with, our words can't fail because our words were never the point anyway. Conversely, the most eloquent speech or the most perfectly prepared presentation cannot bring anybody to the throne. It's a 100% work of God or it just doesn't happen. You know, And this great principle that I just mentioned to you, this great principle of Christian life is laid, right, is laid down right here in Exodus. Moses was absolutely inadequate. He was. This was not the right man for the job. By everything we could tell. And he, Moses knew it. He didn't think he was the right man for the job. I mean... You bet you and I are absolutely inadequate for any of these tasks that God gives us, including spreading the gospel. But it doesn't matter. Because our job is to trust and obey. Okay? If he says go, we go, he handles the rest of it. Okay? Moses didn't quite get that yet. Okay? Now beginning in verse 14, we get this long genealogy of the first three sons of Israel. Okay, Reuben, Shimon, and Levi. But all that's really paid attention to in these verses are the Levites. Now, I think I've included for you, yeah, a structure of Israel. 
this chart. And we've talked about the various names for the various levels of the societal structure of Israel. And in these verses of Exodus 6, these names and titles are used. Uh, I know that various versions use different names, so if your version doesn't use the names and titles I'm about to give you, I just encourage you to write down what I'm about to tell you in the margins of your Bibles for future reference. In verse 14, it says, these are the heads of their father's houses. Where it says heads, the Hebrew word is rosh. And indeed, it means head. And if we look a little further in the same verse, it says, these are the families. The Hebrew word used here is mishpacha, and should not be translated family. Rather, it should be translated clan. And because mishpacha is clan, the title assigned to the head, the rosh, of each of these clans is a chief. So this verse is talking about the chiefs who are the heads of the clans. This is the next tier of Israel societal structure after the prince who is the head, the rosh, of the entire tribe. Now in time, as each current prince dies, one of these clan chiefs usually the firstborn of them, will become the new prince of the tribe. And the main point of the verses in chapter 6, beginning at 14 and going on to the end of the chapter, is simply to establish the all-important fact that Moses and Aaron were of the Levite tribe. Further, they were of a specific clan that began with Kohat. Two other clans of Levites are also mentioned, Gershon and Merari. Now we're not going to examine all these clan lines, at least for now. What's important to understand is that while the overall tribe of Levi was the tribe of priests, only one clan among the Levites could be priests and produce the high priests. The rest of the clans of Levi were not priests at all, they were workers doing various things to help serve the tabernacle, later the temple, and the priests themselves. Now, while the Bible hasn't informed us yet uh, of which clans will get which duties, the genealogical record is being established here so that there can be no doubt later on as to who belongs to which clan as the duties start being handed out. And next week, We will start chapter 7.